Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. They're teaching the kids how to pray. And I think a whole lot of us probably should go and listen to that about how to pray. Um, but it's really exciting. And actually, with that, Dave, over the couple last couple weeks, they take prayer requests from the kids. And, uh, and, and we're going to put some of those prayer requests up. Some of them are about you. No, I'm joking. Don't worry. But uh, these are some of the prayer requests from the kids uh, that are on the screen there. And, uh, and the incredible thing is we just, as the, the team mentioned some of the other prayers, there was, I don't know if you can see some of them. Please help me with school. I'm struggling with maths. So um, we're going to pray for, that was, that was probably my prayer. I must be honest. I think it was mine. But, um, but, but the incredible thing, there's kids, where, these are kids with their prayers. Some of them are, they, they're aware of what's going on in life. Some of them, there's a, they're little challenges. But there's also some big challenges going on, and they're aware of it. And, and more than them learning how to pray, I want to encourage us as a community. Can we be a community that pray for our kids? And uh, I'd love us, if, even for you, if, just, if this is just a moment just to remind you to be praying, just to let you know that there, there'll be prayer, we're going to be putting some of the kids' prayer requests up on our Facebook, Instagram pages, just to be a reminder so we can be a community praying. And uh, maybe that sounds trite for you, but it's a big deal. I think in the kingdom of God, when we pray, God answers those prayers. So let's be doing that. Maybe let's just pray quickly right now for, for our kids' ministry, life kids in general. Father, we thank you for what you are doing behind those doors and the two classrooms with the kids in our, of this community, I thank you, Father God, that we are going to see your, your, your spirit poured out on them in a real way. Would these kids fall in love with you, Jesus, at a, at a young age, and would they never wander from that path? I thank you, God, for your scripture that says, train up a child in the way they should go, and they will not depart from it. We thank you, God, that, that is, it takes a village to raise a child, and I thank you that we have a very uh, healthy village right here. And I thank you, maybe God, for some of us who don't have kids or, or we, don't have a, a, we don't feel we have a vital role to play in that, that job. I pray, Father, that we would all pick up the mantle of praying for these kids and praying for these teachers and volunteers who, who give their time to serve and love these children. I thank you, Jesus, that we are going to see the, the kids' ministry of Life Changes Milneton growing and growing and growing. I thank you, Father, for friends and families to come to Life Changes through the kids' ministry. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen which is really, really cool. Keep an eye out for that. Just a few announcements very quickly. These are, these are less church news, just more family announcements. They're on the screen behind me. You'll see a beautiful couple. Kevin and Jess, where are they? Come on, stand up, stand up there. Come on. She is, she is not just showing off her new nails. She's showing off her ring because he proposed yesterday on her birthday. Come on. Come on, Kevin. Champion. Super proud. And uh, Kevin wanted me to let you know we are all invited to the wedding. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Jess is running out the back already. What? But really proud of you guys and so, so excited. Uh, really, really cool to see what God's doing, but we love you guys hugely. A couple of other things. On the next one, you'll see that's my wife. I just wanted to put a beautiful picture of her. It was her birthday yesterday, so thanks for stealing my thunder, Scott. But um, she's wonderful. This right here, there's little Alexander. Where's granny and grandpa of this little man? There we go at the back. Come on. Uh, bubbles, bubbles, hey, eh? it's bubbles, hey, eh? there we go, there we go, I love it, oh, loud and proud, so the parents are, are not here this morning, but uh, Kerry and Pierre, if you know them, amazing couple, and we really love your family, that's little Alexander the Great, I love it, and then finally, Scott mentioned it as well, there's Mama and his baby boy, Zachary Scott Ferreira, eh? so you went with your own name as the middle name, eh, wow, a little, little bit pretentious, eh, but... Uh, <laughs> Sheesh, Scott. Well, to each his own. To each his own. But no, well done, man. Just to let you know, Scott, uh, that is, oh, we're so proud of you guys, man, and so thrilled. And really cool to see God adding that the church is growing one way or the other. So if you won't bring friends, we'll keep having babies. So you've been warned. But it was really, really good to be together this morning. I want to tell us a little bit more. This morning we are starting a series just for the next two weeks. In three weeks' time, we've got my good friend Paul Eady, who's going to be leading us in worship in the city on the Wednesday night. But then on the Sunday, he's going to be here preaching with us. And this is, he was my, my first my youth pastor and one of my best friends. Uh, and uh, I'm very excited for him to come minister in three weeks' time. So you don't want to miss that. He is a powerful, powerful man of God. And, uh, and I'm really excited to unleash him on my friends. So you're going to have fun with that. But then this morning and next week, we're doing a two-week, brief two-week series that we felt as a, as a leadership team just to speak into this, this concept of how to build a nation. 
and in the sense of it's in light of what's going on in our nation at the moment and how we, what is the church's response in all of this. But I don't want to start in the present day. I want to take us back about 70 years, 70, 80 years to the, the 1940s. Bear with me for a moment. 1940s. Anyone from the 1940s? Come on, come on. Give me a whoop, whoop, all 1940s. Well, there we go. In the, in the 1940s, and it's, it's to be specific, 1942, there was, a, a, as, as World War II was in its, in its, in its zenith and going, going full charge ahead, Hitler was advancing across the Eastern Front. He made his way, his way all into the Russian, uh, the Russian borders. And there was something that's called, if you want to go look it up later for time's sake, the Siege of Leningrad. Leningrad, which is now today St. Petersburg. But the Siege of Leningrad was where Hitler's Nazi regime were being held off by the Russian Red Army in a battle that would last 880 days. So on the better part of three years, there was this incredible battle that was going on, and they were fighting for the very freedom of mankind, freedom of humanity, as, as these two massive empires were colliding, and the allied forces were trying to get involved at the last minute, and this battle of that siege of Leningrad that just that laid, laid siege and, and laid to waste the Russian people. And it was at the, at the at very height, it was in the coldest of cold, and in the winters, and people went hungry, and famine ravaged the land on the basis of this war. But... This incredible wall that was going on atop where there was fires and there was, there was deaths left, right, and center. There was bullets and shells flying everywhere. We find there's this, this amazing story that's gripped my imagination that, that doesn't get much airplay, but it's something, there's an area, an institute, a science, a science institute called the Vavilov Institute. I'll say it in Russian, Vavilov. <laughs> the Vavilov Institute, which is in Leningrad as well. But this institute was an agricultural institute that had to steward and look after and, and grow 187,000 varieties of plants, 40,000 of which were food crops in seed form. Now, at the height of this war, with thousands starving to death at the hands of war, winter, and famine above ground, these amazing people, in order to protect the seeds and the, the crops that they had in their care, they went underground. They went in the, under a basement-type structure, and these scientists started to work in the dark freezing, cold building of an institute, and these scientists intensively prepared the seeds for long-term preservation in the city, protecting them with their lives from the marauding enemy and the carnage of the battle above them. What is profound was as the siege went on and on and on, much longer than any of them thought they had to do, as they barricaded themselves in with their one job, as they tossed one another, saying, actually, we at, at all costs, we have to make sure we protect these seeds for future generations. The siege went on they boarded themselves in with the seeds, and one by one, these scientists died of starvation. Why? Because they refused to eat from any of their collection of containers of rice, potatoes, peas, corn, and wheat for the sake of the future generation. In rooms full of food, these nine scientists had made packs where they actually were not allowed in the rooms on their own to avoid temptation. They said they made packs that they would go to their graves rather than eating of the seed, eating of the food. As I read the story, I realized that above ground, political powers and empires clashed in battle. But the real future of the nation was being protected and fought for underground by nine scientists. And when the war finished, the nation was fed from that one room for many, many years to come. Why I tell that story is because I think when we bring into our present day context of our nation and our world. And uh, you, just, you, don't have to be, you don't have to be a scientist or an astute sociological brain to understand that there's, we're living in really tough times. You just have to flick through a, news, uh, a Facebook news feed or read a newspaper or an article on News24 and you see thing, headlines about attack on womanhood, corruption, race baiting, confusion reigning in the area of sexuality and gender, a divisiveness that runs deep across the political world. And I don't know what your response is when you read these sort of things or you see these things or, or your, your heart gets filled with these sort of narratives in front of you. But my heart, often when I read these things, leads to frustration. It leads to futile arguments. It leads to finger pointing and ultimately leads to fear in our hearts. So the question we want to ask in the next two weeks, now hopefully it'll be provocative and I believe it'll be hopefully helpful for us as a people. How are we to respond as individuals? And ultimately, as the church at this time, and secondly, does our response actually matter at all? I want to suggest as we read a scripture that it does, and that actually not does it just matter. I believe that is of utmost importance. The scripture will be on the screen behind me. We read it last week, Ephesians 1, verse 20 to 23. It says this, God raised Christ from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven. 
in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies and governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. The lines that jump out of me, and I hope they jump out of you in this whole, this grand scripture declaring the majesty of Jesus, is this line about us, his bride, it says the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. I want to suggest before we pray this morning, that though the, real, the big battle seems like it's raging around us, this war of wars on ideologies and futures and anger and violence and protests are waging war at a macro level and polit- politic- political realm, I want to suggest that the real future of our nation is held by the minority, you and I, at a deeper level. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, this morning as we gather as your church, the church who you died for, the church that you pray for, and the church that you are ultimately coming back for. I thank you, Jesus, that you are doing in this room so much more than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine this morning. I know in this room, as we've mentioned, some people are celebrating birthdays, babies, boardroom successes, but at the same time, we know, as Scott mentioned, people are mourning, questioning, struggling, hurting. But I thank you, Jesus, that in the midst of all this, in here and out there, you are working, as we sang in this song, even when we don't see you, you're working. Even though we don't feel it, you're working. And you're working our victories and our struggles more than we could ever imagine. And our Holy Spirit, as we preach your word and as we respond to your word together in this moment, this holy moment, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and set your church ablaze for the sake of this nation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I say it again. The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. That line has been blazoned on my heart, not just recently, but for ever since I first came alive to Jesus, there's been a gripping of my heart for the church. But I, I want to say, let's be honest, it's hard to feel that way sometimes. It's, a, it's an easy line to say, the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. But sometimes it often feels like the war is raging around us, but we're stuck in a small room underground guarding some seeds. Am I the only one who feels like that sometimes? That we're the only ones who are gathering on a Sunday and it can feel like when we're doing church and we're being the church and community, it feels, it feels great and helpful, but it feels quite insignificant compared to the larger problems that are on display. Am I the only one? Thank you for being honest. I appreciate that. Otherwise, I was like, well, then you guys preach. But I want to suggest this morning, I want to just help you just get a, a grid, a reference point of what's going on, because sometimes we can think that we are so entrenched in our historical place in this world, we think that this, the here and now, is the only thing that's ever happened. That actually the world did not exist before the 2nd of June, 1988, when I was born. But let me tell you, it did. And it did for millennia before. But I want to tell you that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, has always thrived in persecution and in minority. When the church was in persecution and when it's been in the minority, it's always thrived. It seems the antithesis of the, what the world would suggest. But I want to suggest that this is what God says. I want to, let me get, help you get, get a grid of this. Acts chapter 2, when we first see the church, we sang this, the, that line, and the, the church of Christ was born as a spirit, lit the flame. Acts chapter 2, go read it at home. We find the disciples upstairs hiding in an upper room. Hiding because Jesus had told them to wait, but also hiding because the authorities of the day had put out a, a sort of a decree that these guys were wanted men and women. Why? Because they were spreading propaganda that Jesus had risen, risen from the dead. They were hiding for their lives. But in the space of that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and the church of Christ was born. And with a minority in the upper room, God breathes his life. And that, 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 that upper room changed the city. In Acts chapter 4, the story moves on. It's the Sanhedrin, the religious elite of the day, call these same men in. Why? The phrase there that pitches up says, because they have turned the city upside down with the message of Jesus. In two chapters, they've turned the city around. And they called in and they're banned from speaking any further. Of it. The, the, the government of the day, the legal authority of the day said, actually, we're banning you from speaking about this Jesus. A group of a minority a small group who is like almost sick that should have been just pushed away to the side, but actually they were banned. No, you must not speak. But we know they refused to back down their moment. Acts chapter 7, you keep reading, we find a man named Stephen on his own. He's inciting a riot from a large sector of society 
by just preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is stoned to death with a man, Paul, a man named Saul, proceeding over his death. Acts chapter 12, we see a man named Peter is in prison for his faith, and the church are in a small room on the sideline somewhere quietly muttering under their breath, play, praying and pleading in prayer in secret for Peter to be released. And the spirit moves, and Peter's prison chains are drop off, the gates open, and Peter walks out free. In Acts chapter 27 and 28, we find a man, Paul, who initially was Saul presiding over Stephen's death, but because of Stephen's action, he comes to the faith in Jesus Christ, and this persecutor of the faith becomes its greatest proponent into the next, uh, next generation for generations to come. Paul has a vision that he will get to Rome and be able to preach the gospel to Caesar. Do you know how Paul gets to Caesar? In chains, not on a chariot, but in chains. And he gets to preach to Caesar, but this is on the back of him being shipwrecked, being bitten by a snake, and almost being murdered by the rest of his traveling crew. The church has always thrived under persecution and in the minority. You don't believe me? Well, in Rome, Paul's there, and years later, we read in the book of First and Second Peter, when Nero, we've mentioned this before, but the emperor Nero, historically, then starts the, the greatest uh, destruction of the church and the people using them as playthings, throwing them to lions uh, for entertainment in the Colosseum. And Peter writes to the, the Christians of Rome saying, actually, stand firm. You're aliens and strangers in this world, just passing through, but actually, our greatest day is still to come. And though the world try to crush them out, the church of Jesus Christ still advanced. In persecution and minority, the church of Jesus Christ still moves forward. I want to tell you, the 1500s, let's just skip a few centuries here. The 1500s come around, and, and, the, and Christianity in, in its form that we know today is opposed by the state religion. And anybody who would speak up against the state religions and against the Pope and the system of the day would be burnt at the stake. That was Friday night entertainment. Who needs NTN gladiators? See, I was a 90s kid. Let's go and watch the burning of the Christians at the stake. So much so there was a story about a, uh, two guys called Latimer and Mortimer. Those were good names, if you wanted. Latimer and Mortimer. And I love this little anecdote that I read about these two guys who for preaching the gospel and declaring that actually the king and the pope were wrong, that actually Jesus is the only way to the Father, they were burnt at the stake for this, and Latimer was burning quick, more quickly than Mortimer. Latimer was dying more quickly. So Mortimer, because his death was taking slow, was crying out in pain and anguish because the flames were licking his body. Latimer, who was dying quickly, said to him, Mortimer, play the man. Basically, man up. They're both being burnt. This is great. He says, play the man before today you'll see the face of your king and the earthly king will bow his knee to him. I read those stories. I don't know about you, but I'm like something, the, the, what the world sees as now the church being the small minority on the sideline, that those two voices, the, the, the one the historian says, the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the church. Whenever persecution comes, whenever we're in the minority, the church advances. Let me tell you, on the back of that, 1500s, boom, the Reformation happens. On the back of these deaths, Martin Luther comes and nails his thesis on the Pope's door. And, all, and, and church, as we know, just changed forever. The 1700s, 200 years later, before the Great Awakening, we, I found this quote, a quote that said this from the 1700s. It says, somebody writing about church in the 1700s, religion became something of a pastime in which people would go through the motions during re uh, religious services without deeply felt convictions of the heart and soul. It sounds like something that someone could have written in a blog yesterday about our world. After the back of persecution and the Reformation comes, and then what happens? Church becomes the national pastime. And actually what happens when that happens, when we think we're in peace times, the church retreat. But then what happens was the, in God's mercy, because of some faithful saints crying out on the, to the Lord's name, 1726 to be exact, the Great Awakening rolls through Britain and the 13 colonies of the United States, and we find a man named George Whitfield. One of my personal heroes, a man who started to preach in the fields to the coal miners and revival breaks out in the face of persecution in the minority. Him and John Wesley turned the face of the church again upside down. Stories that I love. I could go on for days about these guys. John, uh, George Whitfield was such a dramatic preacher. You think sometimes the guys you see on YouTube are dramatic preachers. They shout a lot. Let me tell you about George Whitfield. He was a manic man. He was crazy. to get. He had to use just his voice to get people's attention as he preached to thousands on hilltops, and so much so that because he was such a theatrical preacher trying to get the gospel of Jesus to people, that some of the drunkards thought that he was even more entertainment than them. 
True story. A true story happened by the power of the Holy Spirit that moved while they were in the minority and being persecuted. The Holy Spirit started to move on the back of their faith. The church was still advancing. George Whitfield used to preach again and again and dramatically would declare to people, repent, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a story about a local bar that the drunkards were mocking George Whitfield. They were mocking him so much so one guy got up and, uh, they, and he was a great impersonator, no impersonator. He got up and he started impersonating George Whitfield on top of the bar and making jokes about George Whitfield. But as he said, as he got to his zenith of his, his, his mimicry, he came to a moment where he yelled out as a drunkard, he yelled out, Repent! And as he said that, true story says that he was struck dumb. He went sobered up and went home and wept and converted. <laughs> The church of Jesus Christ always thrives under persecution in the minority. In the 1960s, let's get to our, our generation, there was something called the hippie movement. And it's been sometimes characterized, if you go read about it, of like peace and love, man, it's like flower power. It's almost like, oh, nice, quite funny. But let me tell you, the hippie movement at its very center was about drugs, promiscuity, and violence that makes Antifa and some of the destruction and rioting we see here in our own backyard look like kindergarten. It was based on violence, based on this, like, against the man. It's nothing new in the, in the Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. But can I tell you, under the 1960s, when this, was, this hippie movement was pushing forward, at the same time in 1967, something called the Jesus People Movement was launched. And the Jesus People Movement burst forth with salvations and Holy Spirit power and changes the way we sing and do worship up to this day. It was birthed out of that. The church always, always advances and thrives under persecution and when it's in the minority. So here's the key. Let me tell you, the key of our future is this, the people of God. If you look at this, a broad sweep of, of, of church history and scripture, it's always been the people of God, not a political system, not the economic climate, but the church. Who holds this nation's future? I tell you, it's not uh, the right political person in power. Not, it's not even a great economic change. It's not even education. Our hope is in none of the above. It's in Jesus Christ and his church. You're not convinced. I've got to keep going this morning. The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. So let me help you this morning by, in my own heart, by a man named Nehemiah. So with the time left, I want to tell you a story about a man named Nehemiah. It takes place in the Old Testament. This week, if you've got time, it's, it's a mere 14 chapters. Go read it at home. But a great narrative that takes place in some of Israel's darkest days that will rival our dark days and take it to the next degree. You see, Israel had disregarded the prophets' voices to repent, and because of this, Jerusalem had been destroyed and plundered by a foreign power. So Cape Town, as we know it, was laid to waste by a foreign power. And not only that, was all the people were taken into captivity in a nation called Babylon, present-day Iraq, for 70 years. 70 years ago, with their city back home in ruins, broken, destroyed, and they are all in chains and living as, as foreigners and exiles in a foreign land, serving a foreign king, not allowed to do that, with their names being changed. If you just go read the story of Daniel and, and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were belittled and mocked and were under constant abuse. But here's the great thing, under persecution in the minority, the church always moved forward. So much so that God raised up a man named Nehemiah, who was working as a cupbearer for this king in a foreign land. A cupbearer, if you, just to be quite honest, what he does was he would taste the wine before the king drank it, not to make sure it was a Merlot or a Chardonnay or if it, or if it was corked or not. No, he tastes the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Welcome to his job. Nice job, eh? He has a good health, I hope. It's good. That's what he did, and he did that. For, the Bible gives us days that this was not a new job. He had been doing it for a long time. He had been doing it for a long time, and he had won favor with the king. But one day, this amazing moment came when actually uh, he asked, he has asked about his people starting to return. 70 years finished, people starting to return back to Jerusalem from captivity. And he asked them, how, how are the people? And how is the place? And he gets this response. He says, the people are in trouble and disgrace. These are friends talking about Jerusalem. They say, the walls of the city have been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And in response to praying, chapter 2 tells us that he, he, the, his, the king took notice of Nehemiah. Why? Because he said, Nehemiah looked sad in his presence for the first time. That's when you know you've got a good employee. 
This guy's pitched up faithfully day after day after day after day. But on the back of hearing this news about Jerusalem, he looked sad. And the king said, what's wrong? And he was able to tell a king, a foreign king, who was part of the regime that took his people into captivity, that, that these people were right, the, the, what was propping up their, Babylon's economic success. But Nehemiah says, actually, can I go back? I want to go back to, to, to Jerusalem, and I want to help rebuild my city and help rebuild the people. And the amazing thing on the back of that, the, the king of Babylon at the time says, I grant you favor, go do that. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in, the, in the, the narrative of the story. But as we understand this text, as he goes back, I want to walk you through the story very quickly. And in the same breath, I want to give us three practical handles as we land this time. Three practical response systems that we need to take hold of if we're going to see the church advance. Not only that, but in the process, the nation and its future be built together. I want to say that building a nation with broken walls takes, number one, faithfulness. Nehemiah is in a foreign land serving a foreign king but he had not forgotten where his power came from. There's a scripture behind me, Nehemiah 1 verse 5 to 6. This is Nehemiah's prayer when he hears about the plight of his, his city, when the plight of his people. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. This was a man of prayer. This was a man who was carrying the spiritual burden of his people, carrying the spiritual burden of a nation. And, I, and as I read this again, I, I found my heart with this question. Maybe it's not as profound as I first wrote it down, but to me it was God saying to me, am I carrying the spiritual burden of this moment or am I just adding to the burdens around myself? Am I just carrying my own personal burdens or am I carrying the burden of a nation and of this moment? Am I awake? If the church is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church, am I awake and alive as life changes, awake and alive to the significance of this moment? As George Whitfield was in the 1700s, as Martin Luther was in the 1500s, as the, the Jesus People Movement were in the 1960s, are we awake and alert to the significance of this moment, or are we willing to carry the burden of it, or are we adding, we're just willing to throw a like on Facebook every now and again? I want to ask us the question, what has God called you to do? A scripture that has plagued me and irritated me and challenged me my whole life is found in the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's talking about the Spirit of the Lord, speaking about God, and God speaking to His people. God says this, at the time of great darkness, and great trial, and great opposition, Ezekiel says this about the Lord. The Lord says, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, but I found none. I want to tell you, the Lord, at this time, He's not looking for people or a church who have the right answers. He's not looking for a people and church who would say, we're the bastion of truth. He'll say, I'm looking for a man or woman who will stand in the gap. And why it's plagued me is because when he said, but I found none, I said, God, would that never be written about my generation? Though if everyone else runs away, would I still be a person who's willing to say, God, but even though I'm in the minority, even though persecution might rage, rage, rage around me, I'm willing to stand. Let me say this, faithfulness leads to opportunities. As we see Nehemiah for years and years and years, faithfully serving as a good employee to a foreign king, to a king who probably wasn't giving him great pay, to a king who probably wasn't giving him the great off days. His job satisfaction probably wasn't an all-time high. He wasn't going on team-building retreats where doing trust exercises and having an ice cream afterwards. No, this was probably a very tough job, but for year after year after year, he served him faithfully, doing it unto the Lord. And at the right moment, God opened up an opportunity for breakthrough. So many of us are, are, are running away from opportunities because we're not willing to stick out where God has called us to. Let me tell you again, let me say in a different way, God sees the secret things. And He makes them the sacred things. As I, as I read that story of 1942, and I read Scripture, I realize this principle that the unseen produces the seen. It's a biblical principle that what happens in the unseen place becomes what happens in the seen place. And, and I want to say, don't ever think the unseen isn't important. God sees and hears what no one else sees and hears. In 1942, for three years, 880 days, a nation, the polit politicians thought what their decisions were making, guaranteeing the future of Germany or guaranteeing the future of Russia or guaranteeing the future of the Allies. But little did they know for three years, there were underground scientists who actually said they didn't even know it for them. What they were doing was securing the future of the nation. 
In that moment, it felt insignificant. In that moment, it felt cold and dark, and no one knows, no one will ever write a headline about us, but actually what they were doing was more significant than what everyone else was doing. Let me say this. Your physical life does not need to determine your spiritual life. But your spiritual life has to and will affect your physical life. That's really good. I'll say it again for my own self. Your physical life does not need to determine your spiritual life. But your spiritual life has to and will affect your physical life. Let me say when I say that the unseen will become the seen, I say that in the positive and the negative. What you sow in faith, you will reap. But also what you sow in fear, you will reap. I tell you, from 2005 to 2009, my family lived in a very, very small second-level two-bedroom flat in Morningside, Durban. And then I used to tell, when friends asked me where I live, I'd make sure I just said Morningside. Because I didn't tell them it was low at Morningside by Percy Osborne because that was a little bit of a poorer area. But small house, very small flat, that creaking floors. But I want to tell you, that house was a seedbed for revival at my university at a youth group, and for this church right now, because I want to tell you, I, everything that God is opening up for me today was sown in those four years. When, no, when I had no authority, I had no title, no ability to change any climate, but I want to tell you about that house because I would wake up in the middle of the night to pray and read the Bible. As a 17, 18-year-old, when other friends at university would tell me what they were spending their time with, I, uh, just, was, they, I wouldn't tell them what I did because it would just seem weird and against, at odds. I would choose subjects at universities, at my university, that didn't have uh, lectures on Fridays. This is how strategic I was with my courses. So that I could stay at home and pray all day for the youth ministry in the evening. Maybe it deterred my marketing career. <laughs> But I want to tell you, I would rejoice when my parents would go out so I could have the whole house to worship and seek the Lord. Maybe I, I say, I, I even wrote, writing that down because I go, it sounds weird. But I want to tell you, it's not weird, it's actually normal. It's weird when the, world, when the church is peripheral to the world. But it's normal when the church, actually we dictate what happens in the world. Let me tell you, why doesn't this type of response of Nehemiah breaking down, praying for people that he doesn't even know? He's lived for 70 years away from those people, but God has put this burden in his heart, people in power, economic situations. But this man, Nehemiah, all of a sudden, a man who should be disqualified from rebuilding the city, who should be disqualified from the city. But why does this grip his heart, and why does it not grip our heart often? Well, here's my one thought. Is society, sociologists today say that we have become addicted to distraction. We are a generation who are the most distracted generation of all time because of something called social media and technology. And, and, and we know, I'm not now railing against that, but, but the society, the sociologists, the sociologists and scientists tell us that you, we are so overstimulated as a culture by our devices that old forms of entertainment and pastimes aren't sufficient anymore. So let's do a little test here. How many of you have started watching a movie or a series that you've actually been so excited to watch? And e but even though you're so pumped to watch it, within the first 30 minutes, you're still scrolling through your newsfeed. Anybody? Anybody like me? Come on, be honest. There we go. And the rest of you didn't put your hand up because you're tweeting right now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can see that. Good. Thanks for being honest. You know, when I, when I was in England recently, I dropped my phone into, off the Brighton Pier, and, I, and I pro this is what's in my heart. I promise you, for the next three days, I think I suffer from mild depression. I'm not even joking. I felt so disconnected. I felt so weird. At night, I got into bed, and I didn't, I was like, I started flicking in the air. I'm like, ah. I, I started freaking out. What am I going to do? Who's going to update my statuses? What, no one will know. It's so, we are so wired to the systems of this world. We got so distracted that with spare, any spare time, we are, Flicking. With any spare time, we, we, we're wanting to numb our ability to engage with what God is doing in the present. I want to tell you that we need to learn how to fight this with everything. Because here's the thing, that actually the church's walls, when you see the church's walls, when I say the church, not just us, but the church in general, is in chaos. The church is in an identity crisis. Don't know whether we have to play to the world or if we have to bunker down and hide away and wait for the rapture. The church don't know what to do, and it's seen the church being fractured at the center, and the church's walls are broken. What do we do? Do we fling stones 
Do we go, ah, that church, become part of the critics and run away? The business walls, your business walls are broken. Your marriage walls are broken. Your family's walls are broken. Your city's walls are broken. What are you going to do in that moment? Are we going to run away or are we going to be faithful to the burden that God has put on our heart? Galatians 6 says this way, do not grow weary in doing good. Maybe I'm prophesying to somebody here today. In your marriage, in your business, and everything inside you says bail. I want to say this, do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest. If that's all you hear today, I pray maybe it settles on somebody. We need to have a new faithfulness. Secondly, fortitude. I thought some, some of you might not know what fortitude is. The dictionary defines it as courage, bravery, strength of character in the face of pain and adversity. Something that uh, our generation, my generation, lacks <laughs> fortitude. You see, the story goes on. When opposition comes against Nehemiah, he goes home and he starts re- rallies the people. They start rebuilding wall. What's going to happen? Opposition comes. Opposition comes in this moment. And at the face of opposition, at the, at the height of the story, there's this phrase that I've just underlined and underlined and underlined. When opposition comes, they say, Nehemiah, come down and reason with us. Nehemiah says, I will not come down. This is too great a work the Lord has given me. I will not come down. I want to give us very quickly fortitude. We need to learn how to get fortitude, courage, bravery, strength of character in the face of pain and adversity, fortitude in the face of cynicism. Quick scripture, Nehemiah 4 verse 1 to 3. Sanballat, a man named Sanballat and Tobias, they had two guys who come opposition to Nehemiah. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews, this poor, feeble church think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. That's how I feel often. We gather, we sing songs, we pray, we preach, and I'm going, did that do anything? And the enemy comes and says, ha what a feeble attempt. The church, peripheral to the world, the world peripheral to the church. I've counted your people. I've, I know what's going on in the people. That's not a lot of people. That's not a big enough group of people. It's not even the most significant people. And the enemy loves to come in the face of cynicism. And the enemy will say, I want to say this, that cynical voices will destroy faith in your heart. And I've had to fight this thing. Because cynicism and faith cannot coexist. They cannot. They are enemies. No, but I'm, I'm just the voice of reason. Don't be the voice of reason. Be the voice of faith. There are many voices of reason prophesying doom and gloom over families, over situations, over life. The church is called to be the voice of faith because we know that what comes from the unseen becomes the seen. It's so, oh, how easy it is to declare the seen. Uh, so, the enemy is so good at declaring the seen. The enemy is so good at saying, look how feeble your efforts are. The enemy is so good at saying, look how small your business and profits are. The enemy is so good at saying how insignificant your ministry is. The, the enemy is so good at saying how small and weak your prayers sound, how large the deficit is. It takes men and women of fortitude and courage to declare the unseen. There's a diamond dozen who's declaring the scene. But I want to say this, don't get sidetracked into civilian affairs. 2 Timothy 2 verse 4. A man named Wally years ago who planted this church, Life Changes, he said to me that his, his mentor, Tim Salmon, back in the 70s, what a great name, Tim Salmon. He said, this is the 70s, so just bear with me with the terminology. He said there are three things that will disqualify men from the purposes of God. He said they're pennies, pride, and petticoats. As a good preacher, all alliteration. Pennies, meaning money, they'll begin the way, become fine and stuff, will get in the heart. Pride and petticoats, meaning women. See, those are three things. And what he told me this once, and I was like, what are you trying to say? What are you prophesying? I'm a bit nervous. And he said, Gabe, I've been praying for you. And he says, actually, uh, stand firm against those three temptations. But he says, I want to say my concern for you and your generation is that you'll be disqualified by a fourth one called politics. That you'll get caught up in civilian affairs. You'll get caught up in, in, ground, in ground warfare when God's called you to air warfare. And I want to tell you... Our noses and our ears itch for church scandals, arguments, gossip. And I will say in this, and I'm not, I'm not in a, a vendetta against it, but I just know my own heart that social media is a curse in this, in this front. 
that we can get impassioned about one argument and inflict two down, and we're impassioned about that one. And nothing ever takes root in our hearts because we're always fighting and liking different causes, but we're not actually standing for anything. We need to have fortitude in the face of cynicism. Secondly, fortitude in the face of suffering. Uh, very quickly, I want to say this, that suffering is part of our mandate. If the church thrives under persecution in the minority, can I tell you, that comes with suffering. I'm not trying to be a naysayer. I'm not trying to say, but I, I refuse to keep pepping us up. Somebody, a phrase I often will say, the best is yet to come. I wanted to say that the best is yet to come in Jesus. I'm I'm not saying that every time everything will get better and be hunky-dory and wonderful. Why? Because church history then will prove me a liar. The church thrives under that. And actually the Bible does, because James 1, verse will come up behind me, one of, somebody, I think it was Claire, you said the other day you love the book of James. I don't love the book of James, because it's hard. But this is what it says in verse 2. It says, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way. You know what, if I wrote that scripture, I would write this, suck it up when troubles come your way. And, and there's another word there that I'd love to change. I'd love to change that when to an if. Because I'd love to make sure I have a 50-50 chance. They might come, they might not come. The Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't say just suck it up. It says actually consider pure joy, delight when troubles come your way. When, when? It's coming. It's coming. Live long enough, you will bleed. Some of you are bleeding right now, and your life is tough. I want to tell you, James doesn't sit, come with a, a, a blank and say, it's going to be okay. No, why? He's not trying to mollycoddle you in your smallness. He's saying, actually, you, what God is doing in you, even the suffering, is producing character and endurance. Why? Because our future as the nation of the church depends on how we respond. Too many of us are walking away, I don't know, getting phone call after phone call this week in itself, saying, actually, life is so tough, I'm really doubting God. Can I tell you, with every sense, and I say this with humility, grow up. Let's grow up as a people. I will not come down, Nehemiah said. The enemy comes and says, oh, your life is so tough. Come on, man. I will not come down. A fortitude needs to get in our hearts, and this is when deep convictions are revealed and matured. They only are revealed and matured in great trial. If you want to know if the person is truly who God has called them, who they say they are, wait till trial comes and see how they respond. It's easy. Israel always did well under blessing. They, as soon as, the, as, soon as they, they got drunk on the blessing, they fell apart when the tough times came. But we have to make decisions in our heart here because, uh, let me say quickly, what gets in your head will get into your heart and what gets in your heart will manifest in your life. What gets in your head will get into your heart and what gets in your heart will manifest in your life. That's why the Bible again and again says, be careful of what you think. Guard your thoughts. Set your mind on things above. Careful what you read. Don't give yourself to a diet of bad news, of, of bad social media feeds, of News 24 comment section. Don't give yourself to that. Finally, as we land, faithfulness, fortitude. I want to say we need, the, we need fire. What do I mean by that? We need the Holy Spirit's power. This is not some stoic gospel. Suck it up and let's make it through. Come on, guys. No, there's a scripture that comes at the end of this journey of opposition, of response. The scripture says there in Nehemiah chapter 6, it says, so on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. A nation that for 17 years had been the butt of all the jokes, who had been taken to captivity. They, they, for 70 years, their city was a city that was alight and burning to the ground, just known for destruction. In 52 days, 52 days, that's seven weeks. That's, that's, that's eight episodes of your favorite TV show. <laughs> Done. The walls were built, and the nations feared a small, insignificant group of people because of their God. Isaiah 66 verse 8 said, ask this question. At the end of the prophet Isaiah, and, and the prophesy on the back of great despair as well, he says, can a nation be saved in a day? Now I see the pattern of, the, of God is 400 years of slavery, the people of God in Egypt. But in a moment, he raises up Moses and deliverance comes. 400 years later, we flick uh, to the, the to, 
before the New Testament, 400 years of silence, the people not knowing the left from their right hand, just walking in darkness. But in a moment, the life of Jesus is birthed in the womb. There's a quote I love by D.L. Moody. It says this, D.L. Moody, a great Puritan preacher, he said, the world is yet to see what God can do through one son who is fully devoted to him. The world is yet to see what God can do through one son who is fully devoted to him. I've read that scripture, that, 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 that quote for years. And I remember saying, God, use me. Maybe the world will see what, what one son could do. do. Do it through me. It should, should stir in our heart that maybe actually God, God can use me. God could use me to be somebody who steps up and says, I'm fully devoted. Actually, I'm going to put my head down and be faithful, faithful in prayer, faithful to what you call me to, carrying the burden. I'm going to have a fortitude in my heart. I'm not going to get dissuaded when cynical attitudes come, when, when, when suffering comes. I'm not, gonna, I'm not coming down from what God has called me to do. But actually standing, waiting for saying, God, at the right time, you will bring your fire. You'll bring change at your time, at your portion moment, God. But hey, it's been so many years. No, but God will bring the fire. Elijah came and he rebuilt the stones, the 12 stones, in a very natural act. As he was, there was one man against 400 prophets of Baal. He puts the stones by himself. He was in a minority against persecution, and he was under such siege. But he puts the stones in place, a very natural act, just being faithful, putting the stones in place. But not to, the voices were coming. They were saying, I'm just going to do what God does. And when he finished building the altar, he said, now, Lord of heaven, answer with fire. And it says the altar was, the fire of God fell. God will use who he chooses. And he wants to use this church at this moment to respond in a different way. I say that quote, the world is yet to see what God can do through one son who, what, through one son who is fully devoted to him. I've said do it to me, but I want to tell D.L. Moody when he says, the world is yet to see. He was wrong. There was one son who was fully devoted to the Father. And his name was Jesus Christ. And I love this man Jesus because this man Jesus, maybe you here today, you're saying, I haven't been faithful. Well, here's the good news. The Bible says that when you are faithless, he remains faithful. Philippians 2 says that he was faithful unto death, death on the cross. He was faithful as a son. Not only that, if you're here today and you're saying, I'm feeling weak, I'm feeling my convictions are weak, I've, I've let the wall die, I've come down from the wall many times to, to engage with the enemy, but I feel like I've let down the side. Here's the great news. When you're weak, he is strong. He has got strength. And he has fortitude as, because the Bible tells us that he set his heart like flint to the Jerusalem. He went to the cross and was not dissuaded. Not my will, but yours be done. And I want to tell you, on that sacrifice of faithfulness and fortitude, and what appeared as just the death of another man on the, the hill of the skull, the fire of God fell on that sacrifice. And the world has never been the same ever since. As many sons came to glory, as one seed went into the ground, much life came. I want to tell you this morning, that the story in 1942, the war was raging up above. Violence, politics, agendas, pain, famine, hardship. But underground, nine men said, actually, we're going to sacrifice and guard the seeds with our life because that seed is for the future generation. I believe we're in such a moment here that in this room and in other rooms where men and women faithfully hold on to the name of Jesus, not bowing their knee to the pressures and fears, anxieties of the day, but say, actually, Jesus, we're going to be a people who are faithful. We're going to be people of fortitude, but actually, God, would you, and we cry out, God, we need your Spirit's power. I think this nation could, could be changed. The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Can you close your eyes? I want to read the words of the song that we sang earlier. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and the prophets, to a virgin came the word, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side, knowing this was our salvation. Jesus, for our sake, you died. And the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath till the stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who would come to the Father restored. And the church of Christ was born. 
then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. By His blood and in His name, in His freedom I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. Father, right now, I thank you, Jesus. We gathering in this room today, we stand not in our moment isolated. We stand in the long line of men and women who have faithfully responded to you, Jesus, who have been faithful in the time of pressure, who have stood and fought to you and said, actually, we will not be moved from this task and have held their moment in history, God, despite pressure and cynicism and suffering. They stood in their moment of history and your fire came again and again, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, Azusa Street, God, in the 1960s. And God, we pray again in our day, would we see the mighty hand of our God using ordinary men and women to change a nation, to change a constant, I thank you, Father God. As D.L. Moody said, the world is yet to see. I thank you, God, that sons and daughters are having a new strength in their hearts to say, actually, I will resolve myself to build the walls. But I thank you, Father God, we do this not in our own resilience, not in our can-do attitude, not leave it to beaver as the old saying would go, not, not in roll up your sleeves and let this man up. No, we do it in responding to our King Jesus who laid his life down so that we could live. Right now in this moment, with eyes closed, if you're here today and your heart has been caught up in fear and anxiety, I was praying this week and I felt that many hearts are fearful and anxious about this nation, about futures, about their marriages, about situations and finance. If you have a fear and anxiety and cynicism has gripped your heart, this morning I believe is an important moment that Jesus wants to come and set you free set you free from the cares and worries of this world so you can be tethered to his heart. You can be tied to his heart. If that's you, can you lift your hands with me? Father, I pray for us as a community. I pray with fear, anxiety, bow at the name of Jesus. I thank you, Father God, the spirit of fear would be released and the spirit of love, power, and a sound mind be bestowed on your people. I thank you, Father God. We choose today, we choose today to be a people of faith. We choose to be a people of faithfulness, a people of fortitude. And God, we as a people, we cry out for your power. We cry out for your fire. We cry out for the move of God on our behalf to do what only you can do. Can a nation be saved in a day? Can a soul be saved in a moment from eternity? Yes, if you're here this morning and your heart is not right with God, you've been running, your walls feel broken down, you've allowed sin in, but today you're saying, actually today, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, I'm coming back to the foot of the cross to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Sin has no hold on me. If that's you today, with every eye closed, if you today want to give your heart to Jesus, for the first time and afresh, would you lift your hand high so I can pray for you? Are there people here today? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I thank you for these hands that are raised to you. I thank you, Jesus, right now. Can a soul be saved in a moment only by the blood of Jesus? Can a heart be rescued from despair only in a moment? Can eternities be set in stone with you forever, only by your blood. So Jesus, right now, I thank you that you are rescuing, you're redeeming, you're forgiving, you're restoring, and you're making right sons and daughters who've walked away. I thank you, Jesus. Do this by your power, by your blood, and seal it by your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in our midst here. And this is just the beginning because the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Amen, amen.